If you would, stand with me now for the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and life-giving word. Starting in Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 20. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. All this I have tested by wisdom. I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it out? I turned my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom in the scheme of things, to note the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. And I find something more bitter than death, the woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things, which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. See, this alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And now we turn to Acts chapter 3, where we'll be picking up in verse 11. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, Men of Israel, Why do you wonder at this, or why do you stare at us, as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses." And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets whom have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, And in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you 
from your wickedness. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Heavenly Father, we ask for your blessing to be upon the preaching of the Holy Scriptures. For the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. You can be seated. My last high school football game is seared into my memory, as I'm sure it is for many young men. And I distinctly remember one of our running backs fumbling the ball on the opening drive of the game and then storming off to the sidelines, throwing his brand new shiny red Nike football gloves in disgust, as if the gloves were the source of the problem known as fumbleitis. The weather is beginning to warm up outside, so thousands of men across this country will break out their golf clubs. They'll head to the course, and after duffing a few shots, they'll look down at the club head as if it's the club that failed them. Soccer is in full swing in various parts of the country, and young men will run down the soccer pitch, and they'll strike the ball errantly, and then they'll check the inside of their soccer boot as if that's what's malfunctioned. And in a few short weeks, baseball players will begin to take the field for spring training or in high school and college for their seasons. And inevitably, fielding errors will be attributed to a jinx, a curse, or a hex placed on their glove by a scorned girlfriend or by the, the inerrant uh, act of stepping on the chalk as they take the field. You just don't do that, right? right? That's bad luck. And as you know, baseball players are incredibly superstitious. And there's an expression that fathers and coaches in various sports across the country will utter under their breath as they witness these things. Son, it's the Indian and not the arrow. You can't say that out loud in very many places these days because you'll get canceled. So here's the PC alternative version. Uh, Only a poor craftsman blames his tools. It's the archer, not the arrow, or it's the cowboy and not the pistol. You get the point. As we land the plane on chapter 7, We conclude Solomon's defense that wisdom is better. That's what he's been saying the entire chapter. Look, here's what I really think. Wisdom actually is good. It really is better than foolishness and folly. It's better. But even wisdom has its limitations. And wisdom is limited, not because of the source, which is God, but rather wisdom is limited because of the great deficiency in mankind. The problem lies with the creatures who wield the wisdom, right? It's not the arrow, it's the archer. That's why it's limited. So we observe the limitations of wisdom, and yet we also see the benefits of wisdom as we look at what's wrong with us. And here's the three things that we're going to cover this morning from these verses. We commit, or we are tempted to commit, particular sins. Secondly, we have comprehension deficiencies And third, we have a severe sin condition. In other words, we do not merely sin in general. There are particular sins that we commit. And secondly, there are consequences of sin existing in us from birth. And lastly, our sin nature is universal to humanity and our fall from grace was severe. So here's the first thing that's wrong with us. We have particular sins. Particular sins that we commit or particular sins that we are tempted to commit. We see this in verses 22 and, uh, 21 and 22 and verses 25, 26, and 27. These verses provide examples of our sinfulness that also serve as a warning. So you might hear me talk about what's going on in these verses and say, well, I don't struggle with that sin. 
I hope you don't struggle with all of these. I hope you're not actively committing all of these various sins that we're covering. But even if you're not committing them, these can serve as a warning. These, can, these are the types of sins that if not for the grace of God, there we could go, even if we're not already going there. Right? So here's the first sin. Verse 21, the fear of man. To be clear, verse 21 is not saying that your employees, because what's being described here is your servants, and I don't know if, if, I don't think any of you have servants, but perhaps you have employees. But verse 21 is not saying that your employees definitely despise you and they're exchanging mean emails about you or talking about you on, on your lunch break. Now, what's being dealt with here is that it, it, it's, what it's saying is that if you hunt for the approval of man, you will eventually overhear someone speaking ill of you. Solomon is describing a servant that doesn't like the master in this particular context, but it could be anyone. In this scenario that Solomon's created for us, he's using the subordinate, the servant, as an example. And and, and the master in this context hears that the servant doesn't like them because they were desperate to find out what was said and thought about them. Right, the way that another author puts it is that, look, you were sneaking around the house into the servant's quarters at night with your ear pressed to the door because you can't stand not knowing what other people think about you. When I'm not around, what are they saying about me, right? And what he's saying is if you live your life that way, guess what? Eventually, you are going to hear someone cursing your name or someone saying something about you that's not very nice. Not everybody's going to have a high opinion about you probably. There's going to be someone out there somewhere that when you live in a a desperation to be liked, there's going to be someone that doesn't like you. Now, in the modern era, we have different forms of this, don't we? But if you look long enough, you will find someone speaking ill of you. So why go looking? Why care so much about this? And then he turns in verse 22. He he basically says to this kind of person, look, don't have a double standard in the way that you speak about others. That's the second sin that we're warned against in verse 22. Having a double standard in the way that we speak about others. Now, there are many ways that we can sin with our speech. And this verse only addresses one of them. But that is saying things about people that we shouldn't say. Of course it's wrong. But what Solomon is saying to us in verse 21 and 22 is, look, there are definitely people out there who are saying things about you that are mean. Don't let that bother you. And by the way, you should let that go. Because how many times have you done the same thing? Solomon is saying to us, how often have you said some things that you should not have said about other people? people. He's calling us to show grace and mercy, the kind of grace and mercy that we want for ourselves. We often do to others the things that we hate having done to us. Sometimes the thing that's our greatest weakness is the most offensive thing to us in others. And we are quick, aren't we? We're quick to want mercy and grace to cover our own sins, but we want to throw the book at those who offend us. Those who care deeply about what everyone thinks about them will often be unable to admit what their consciences know to be true. They too are guilty. That's what Solomon is addressing here in this verse. He's identifying the fact that human beings have a conscience. He says, your heart knows. Right? Jiminy Cricket is whispering in your ear, letting you know that you're just like this person that's offended you. What they've done to you, you've done to others. In fact, you might even be worse. And the reason that we can be so harsh with people, with our speech, 
even when they have the same picadillos that we have, is in part because we've seared our own consciences. Listen to your conscience. So what cures these things? What drives us away from fearing man, from speaking ill of others, and living with a double standard? Well, the fear of God, which is the beginning of wisdom. Fearing the Lord leads you away from anxiety about what everybody thinks about you all the time. And it keeps you in a state of humility so that you can be quick to overlook and forgive the faults and sins of others. I'm reminded of a story that a friend of mine from seminary once told. He pulled into the seminary parking lot because he lived off campus and he was running late for class. And as he got out of his vehicle, he dinged the brand new truck of one of the administrators on campus. And he had to kind of skip class and go seek out that, that, I think it was the dean of students at the time. And he sought him out and said, "Ah, this is what I've done to your brand new truck. I'm so sorry. And he, you know, he is feeling all this shame and guilt, and he expected this, uh, this dean to, uh, to, you know, to be you know, unkind to him, right? Because that's how he would treat others if, he, uh, if his truck, brand new truck had been dinged. And, and the administrator said to him, no, look, it's, it's okay. I've broken enough of God's stuff. This is okay. See, he was living in a state of humility, recognizing how often he had been the one who had who had chipped the paint off of somebody else's vehicle, how often he had been the one who had broken God's stuff. So he was quick to forgive this young man that chipped the paint on his truck. Here's some applications for us. Let me ask you a question or five. Do you find yourself to be a person who is careless with their words? Do you find yourself saying things that you wish you hadn't said? On the other hand, do you find yourself to be the type of person who broods for a long time over what other people think about you and what they've said to you or about you? Do you think you put too much stock in the opinions of others? Do you lose sleep over what other people think about you? My encouragement to anyone who would say yes to any of those questions is believe that what God has said about you in Christ is true. Care more about the decrees of God than the opinion of man. Submit your mouth to the Spirit, not to your flesh. Church, we must fear the Lord. It leads us to wisdom, which enables us to not care what everyone thinks about us all the time. And it also helps us to remember our own sinfulness so that we might be quick to forgive and so that we might be cautious about what we're saying. Now in verse 25, Saul Uh, Solomon reminds us that he has turned his heart, he's turned his intellectual powers, right? All of his gifts of affection and cognition and volition, he's turned that to endeavor knowing, discovering, and understanding wisdom and the scheme of things. The scheme of things here meaning the way that things work. He wants to understand uh, not only what is, but how it all works, right? He's wanted to understand the wickedness of folly and mad foolishness, which are contrary to wisdom, Right? Remember, he thought, uh, the way I can understand wisdom and knowledge is if I try to uh, do the opposite of that and try to, understand, like, try to reverse engineer them by exploring mad folly. And what he tells us now is that what he discovered on this particular quest is more bitter than death. That should cause us to go, well, what did he discover? That's serious. And this is the third and fourth example of particular sins committed by mankind. And they're both matters of the heart. Solomon addresses men and women embroiled in sexual sin because it takes two to tango after all. So 
One of the sins that we can be tempted towards, if you're a lady, women laboring against righteousness in the area of sexuality. That happens in our world. One theologian said this. He said that this woman being described in verse 26 is not an individual woman. She is not necessarily a specific type of woman or women in general. Rather, she is a composite image of folly herself. And I would say that that theologian is only half right. It is absolutely true that what Solomon does in both Proverbs and Ecclesiastes is that he personifies sexual temptation. And he he paints this word picture of a woman who is seeking to hunt down and destroy the lives of men. So yes, it's a literary device being used by Solomon. But do you want to know why that literary device is so powerful? Because women like this actually exist in the world. Have you read the end of the book of Genesis? Potiphar's wife. She's this type of woman. The femme fatale of the wisdom literature is not just a general embodiment of sexual temptation. It's not merely the personification of sexual temptation and sin, although that is certainly the case. This is a a type of woman that really does exist in the world. Because sexual sin does not only involve men. In our day and age, there are many women who are going along in this wickedness and even profiting from it. And yet, let let me make it very clear No woman, no woman wakes up and just all of a sudden stumbles into becoming this type of woman, right? You don't wake up one day having lived a life of righteousness and all of a sudden uh, your heart is just magically a snare and a net and you have hands that are like fetters. Lots of different life circumstances and decisions, choices are involved in this. This type of character isn't just born into the world operating like this. Potiphar's wife, for example... She wasn't this good and noble woman all of her life, constantly being faithful to her husband. And then all of a sudden, one day, she just woke up as a lunatic given over to sexual sin, seeking to ensnare young Joseph. In fact, I would argue that there's evidence in the book of Genesis to suggest that this was not her first attempt at infidelity as she's trying to grab a hold of Joseph. Women like her are, they're born as a little girl with no history of this kind of sin, with no history of this kind of behavior. But over time, They grow into a woman. They make choices and they become the type of woman that is not laboring for the Lord, not laboring for her husband and children in the home, but rather she's laboring against righteousness. So ladies, especially you young women, listen to me. You do not need to live in fear that you're going to wake up one day and suddenly be off of a cliff and down this road of rebellion. It doesn't work that way. So don't be afraid. Don't be anxious. Trust the Lord and labor for his kingdom. But also understand this. You cannot play around with sin. You can't abandon piety and godliness and go dabble in sin and then dabble in a little bit more. As if you're going to be able to quickly hit the eject button without any consequences and turn a 180 any moment that you want and be right back into faithfulness and piety. Right back into godliness. It doesn't work this way. So don't be given over to fear. Don't be given over to foolishness. Now, if I'm honest, I think Solomon is addressing men more directly here. And that's what's explicitly clear in verse 26. He's addressing men who desire to please themselves instead of God. Those are the two choices we have. Pursue pleasing God or pursue a life of trying to please ourselves. You can only have one master. You're either going to hate this one and love that one. Or serve this one and despise the other one. So are you trying to please God or you? 
Solomon is making it abundantly clear. The man who is living a God-pleasing life, he will escape sexual temptation. But the sinner will be devoured by it. The godly man will flee and escape it, while the man who desires this sin will run right to it and be devoured by it. Do you remember what happened in the story of Joseph? Yes, he was put in prison by Potiphar, but he was wrongfully accused, wasn't he? He did actually escape the temptation to sin. He did actually escape Potiphar's wife. And therefore, he had a clean conscience before the Lord. And the Lord delivered him out of prison and made him second in Egypt only to Pharaoh. God worked out his story for his glory and for the good of the covenant people. The Bible does not promise that if you're faithful, everyone around you will do you no harm. Now, the promise is deliverance from sin. One scholar believes this verse is speaking optimistically about the potential outcome for a man who faces sexual temptation, and I agree with him. He writes, we are not space rocks inescapably drawn into a black hole. We can escape the powerful draw of evil. Those who please God escape wickedness. And he goes on to point out that this is yet another gift that God has given to those who please him. Do you remember Ecclesiastes chapter 2? That chapter, Solomon tells us that when we please God, God gives us as gifts wisdom, knowledge, and joy. And now, in addition to those things, we find out there's another gift if you please God. It's the gift of being able to escape the pull of evil and the results of sin, which are utterly devastating. So brothers, I'm going to give you a simple exhortation. You don't need to live in fear that as you walk around in the world that all of a sudden you're going to find yourself, through no fault of your own, tumbling down the hill into sexual sin without any possibility of escape. It doesn't work that way. But on the other hand, sin will absolutely take advantage of the opportunities that you give it. Sin will take advantage of the footholds in your flesh that you have allowed and continue to allow to be maintained in your life. If you carry a can of gasoline near a bonfire, you are putting yourself in danger. But if you put yourself far from the bonfire and you don't play with gas, the bonfire cannot produce a gravitational pull that will transport you into the heart of the flame and destroy you. Does that make sense? Hopefully you can understand and discern what I'm saying. Fear the Lord. Be vigilant. Yes. Understand that your enemy wants to draw you close and attack your fleshly desires But also understand that you don't have to go in that direction and walk by your flesh. You can, by the help of the Spirit, walk in the ways of the Lord. You can live a life that is pleasing to God. And if you are fearing the Lord and pursuing to please God, believe that he will deliver you from temptation when it comes your way. You can't avoid temptation at every turn. But you also don't have to go running to find it. So here's some applications. Fear God. If you fear the Lord, you will take sin seriously. Revere the power of God and you will have no reason to live in anxiety about the power of sin in your life. For greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. That's a promise from Christ. Ladies, labor for Christ and his kingdom. You cannot wake up and aimlessly work your way into laboring for Christ. This takes intentionality. And men, for you, pursue a life pleasing to God, not yourself. You cannot wander your way through life and stumble into pleasing the Lord. It is a diligent pursuit that you must undertake. Now, here's the second problem with the archer and not the arrow. We have comprehension deficiencies. There's a hundred different ways that you could have 
Uh, you could state this. This is the one that I landed on. This is what we see in verses 23, 24, and 28. Essentially what I'm saying that we have going on here is the noetic effects of sin. Have you ever heard that phrase? It has nothing to do with Noah. That's noetic. Noetic effects of sin. That's the effects of sin and the fall of mankind that affect our thinking. It's intellectual powers and capabilities, right? It has nothing to do with the flood and with an ark. So the noetic effects of sin is the effect that sin has brought into the world that reaches our intellectual powers and capabilities. And I think the three verses that I'm addressing here, 23, 24, and 28, they describe in part some of the many noetic effects of sin. So here's the first one I think mentioned in verses 23 and 24. Wisdom only gets us so far because we are limited. Derek Kidner says that verse 23 has a devastating finality. He said it could be the epitaph of every philosopher. This is what this verse says. All this I have tested by wisdom. I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. Remember, Solomon is telling us that wisdom is better than foolishness. He just explained last week that wisdom makes us stronger than we are without it. And yet wisdom only takes us so far. You can be just as determined as Solomon to walk in wisdom and to pursue wisdom. And yet you will be limited. Solomon, as you might remember, has been on a long and serious quest to try to understand life. When he says that he has tested things by wisdom, what he is saying is that he has made a thorough investigation. He's left no stone unturned. He's gone down all the rabbit trails. He's given it 110%. He's looked at things from various perspectives. And what he's concluded is that full understanding is beyond him. As you've heard me say before, there are things that we will never know and understand because even apart from sin, we as creatures were never meant or capable of grasping them. And yet, and yet, there are things that if we were sinless, we could grasp. And the reason that we don't is not because there's a problem with wisdom. There's a problem with us. We have comprehension deficiencies Our brains, our minds have been impacted. Our cognitive abilities have been damaged by the fall. Now, here's the second noetic effect of sin. We struggle to understand other people in all of their complexity. This is what's going on in verse 28. Wisdom only gets us so far because people are complex. Sometimes we don't like the idea that human beings are so complex. It makes us more comfortable to do away with nuance. We create our own artificial and manufactured frameworks and labels so that we can easily summarize people and move on. We don't want to admit that we don't know or don't understand someone or what's going on with them. So we use made-up labels that give us the illusion of understanding. Solomon seems to be the kind of man who is unwilling to do that. He's willing to confess just how complex we all are. Now, the conclusion of some uh, scholars, some critics of Solomon, is that in this verse, they think he's engaging in like a chauvinism or a sexism because he's like, look, I found one in a thousand men, but out of a thousand women, I found none. Uh, Well, when he says found, uh, he's not talking about some sort of quest to find moral virtue. That word found should probably be translated as comprehend or understand. 
He goes through the process of trying to understand men, and he can understand them about one in a thousand times. And yet when he turns this same brilliant mind towards women, he can understand them zero out of a thousand times. Which is kind of ironic, considering that combined, he had a thousand wives and concubines, and he couldn't understand a single one of them. I want you to hear what's being said. Solomon, a man touted and renowned for his wisdom, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit as he wrote this, he just wrote, I don't understand women. And all God's people said, amen. And yet Peter tells us as husbands that we are to live with our wives in an understanding way. Sometimes I wonder that if after, as the apostle Peter wrote that, if he was laughing at us, not because he was kidding, but because he too was a husband. And surely he would have grasped the difficulty of what he was calling us as men, as husbands to do. And yet, despite the difficulty of it, it is a command from the Apostle Peter, and we are to do it. Let's make some brief application here. Men and women, understand this. The communication and comprehension problems that you are having with one another are a part of the fall. Your inability to understand and relate to that other guy at work, it's part of the fall. We're complex creatures. We're called to love one another, and so we must, despite the fact that it's difficult. I, I, I want you to understand that you're not the only one struggling with this, right? And it's not just something wrong with you individually. It's something that plagues all of mankind. We need to understand that this struggle to relate and to understand, understand others is common to man. And yet, by the Spirit and by God's grace, we seek to work through it. This also helps us remember that we are to employ patience with others when we're struggling to communicate with them and struggling to understand them. And we should also employ patience with ourselves as we encounter situations and scenarios in which we find it difficult to understand what's going on. We suffer from the fall. This reminds us all the more of our great need to depend upon the Holy Spirit as we navigate life. Wisdom is limited, as we've seen. But it's better than foolishness because wisdom helps us to remember that when there's problems involving comprehension, that it may not be that someone is actively sabotaging things, but rather you are dealing with the consequences of sin upon their minds and your own. Now, here's the third final problem in this passage with the archer. This is why wisdom is limited. We have a severe sin condition. This is what's addressed in verse 20 and verse 29. Solomon bookends, he begins and ends this last section in chapter 7 with two statements about the condition of humanity. He explains the extent of our condition as sinners, and he explains how our original condition was lost. I close with this main point. It could have gone first, but I close with this one because I think we need to be reminded that we share a fallen, sinful estate with people in the world who have committed the sins that I've listed earlier in the sermon. Because sometimes we can hear certain sins listed in certain passages and say, oh, well, I don't struggle with any of those, right? Well, the next chapter's coming, and it's going to touch on you, right? Like, that's how the Bible works. Sometimes it, it illustrates a sin that you don't struggle with, and then on the very next page, it's like, ooh, ouch, that hurts, right? Because that's me. But we need to remember, even if we've not committed or been taken by any of the sins that have been listed early in the passage, we have the same sin condition that they do. Solomon begins this section by reminding us how far our sin condition goes. That's what we see in verse 20. The Westminster divines, pastors and scholars many years ago, 
They teach us in the larger catechisms that God made a covenant with our first father, Adam. And he was not merely a private person. He was a public figure who represented his entire household, which was every human being that would ever come after him. Right? Every human being that would ever descend from him by ordinary generation. That is, ordinary biological birth. And so, when Adam sinned and fell from that estate that he was created in, he took all of us with him. We were all bound to Adam, even though we weren't born yet. And when Adam sinned, he brought all of his posterity with him into an estate of sin and misery. Our sinful condition consists of the guilt of Adam's first sin and a lack of original righteousness that he had when he was created. Our sinful estate consists of a corrupt nature, and therefore we are wholly inclined to evil. This, what I've just listed for you, this is described, this is what's known as original sin. And from original sin proceeds all actual sins and transgressions that we express in the world to God and to one another. What Solomon is saying here in verse 20 is everyone is in the same boat because of Adam. And there is no one righteous. There is no one who is without sin. Paul in Romans 3, when he says there's no one righteous, not one, he's not stating a new thing. He's echoing what Solomon had said many years before. And this is what's so amazing about the arrival of Christ and his subsequent perfectly righteous life. Because in Christ, there is one who is righteous and does good all the time. Derek Kidner points out here that here in verse 29, Solomon is drawing upon Genesis 1 through 3. Solomon ends this chapter by referring back to the beginning of the story as he explains how our original condition was lost. He starts in verse 20 by telling us about the universal condition of mankind, and now he's closing the chapter by explaining how we got to where we are today. Solomon says in verse 29 that God made man upright. What does that entail? Is that talking about posture? Right? He gave us good posture. That's, it's much, much more than that. When God created Adam, he was in Eden, and he was given a job to do, and he was given liberty to eat of anything that he wanted except for the fruit of one tree. And God put creatures under Adam's dominion to exercise authority over them, and he ordained marriage to help him. He invented the institution of marriage to help the man, to help Adam. And the Lord even gave Adam not only the blessing of fellowship and intimacy with his wife Eve, but also divine fellowship, personal communion with God. And God gave him a day of rest in the Sabbath as he labored, and he entered into a covenant of life with him. God gave Adam and Eve living, reasonable, and immortal souls, and he made them after his own image in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness, with his very law written on their hearts. They had no noetic effects of the fall. All the, all the communication errors in marriage and in our relationships at work with other men, none of that existed in the garden. And he also gave them power to keep his law. That's the uprightness that we're talking about. Doesn't it sound wonderful? It wasn't good posture. It was a good estate. It was a blessed condition, a noble condition. And how did we lose it? Well, Solomon tells us right here, by schemes. The way that other English translations translate that is by devices. The device in the garden was what? The fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That was the device. That was part of the scheme that the serpent used to lead man away. And ever since then, mankind has continued to use schemes or devices to sin against God. There are many. 
One of them is listed right there in the book of Genesis in chapter 11, the Tower of Babel. Everybody could speak the same language, and so a bunch of people got together and like, let's, let's circumvent this whole plan of redemption. We're going to work our way back to God. Let's build a tower together. That was a large labor-intensive device, a large labor-intensive scheme. The ones that we often use are much simpler than that. But nevertheless, that is a device and scheme. Every generation, I think, a group of fathers looks at their sons and thinks, wow, they've invented a new way to sin. They've invented a new device or a new scheme. Well, in many ways, that's just not the case. They're just repackaging devices that have already been developed over time for rebellion against God. And they've learned it from their forefathers, and it goes all the way back to Adam. It's nothing new under the sun. We were made upright, and we fell by our schemes, by our devices. We rebel against God. Here's some applications for us. We should understand the breadth of our sin condition. It's gotten everywhere. It didn't miss us. Secondly, we should be aware of our own proclivity for schemes and for devices. It's by our work and devices that sin is perpetuated in the world. And third, we should never blame God for what is clearly the fault of man. The world is the way that it is. It's as bad as it is, not because of a failure on God's part, but because of man's perpetual scheming against God. Wisdom is better because it helps us see our own fallenness. It helps us be aware of what we are capable of doing. And God helps us by wisdom to remember what was lost and why it was lost. But wisdom is limited precisely because we are so sinful. It's not the arrow, it's the archers. Passages like this leave us longing for some good news. And the good news is found in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Solomon begins this section by saying, there is no one righteous. But the beautiful irony found in Acts chapter 3 is the story of Peter. Where is he? He's out on Solomon's front porch, his portico. And he begins to declare to his brothers in Israel that the holy and righteous one of God had appeared, and yet they denied him. The man that could not be found in the day of Solomon was found in the days of the apostles. And what did they do about it? as a nation. They killed him. They killed the author of life. For this righteous one of Israel was God in the flesh, the very wisdom of God, the one who created life itself, had been in their midst, and they handed him over to Rome to die. The one who was not born of an earthly father, but miraculously conceived in the womb of a virgin by the power of the Holy Spirit, and therefore he was free from the noetic effects of sin and filled with the Holy Spirit beyond measure, he came and preached to them. And they turned him over to be, de- to be killed. He came and he proclaimed the good news that the time had come and that the kingship of God had arrived upon earth in him. And therefore, mankind is to repent of their sin and believe this proclamation of the victory of Christ. It's precisely because of the gospel of Jesus that women can labor for the righteousness of God and men can escape great temptations for sin and live a life pleasing to God. For this righteous one of Israel died in our place And he gave us his spirit so that we might walk according to the spirit and not according to our flesh. And this king sent from God. He's a great high priest who understands us. He does not lack the ability to comprehend us in our humanity. And therefore, he is a sympathetic high priest who sees and understands our weaknesses as he sits at the right hand of God the Father and intercedes for us. Praise God for Christ 
the righteous one, the holy one of Israel. Let the hearer understand. Let's pray.